0: Welcome to Tomorrow's World! Virtually every professing Christian knows something about baptism, and if you were born into a Christian denomination, you may very well have been baptized as an infant, meaning that your parents brought you before a priest or minister who said some words over you as he sprinkled water on your head. Or you may have gone through a baptism type service where you were totally immersed in water while a teenager or as an adult. If you are not a professing Christian, you may see all of this as strange, meaningless ritual, but is it? What is the meaning of baptism? Does it have anything to do with your salvation, whatever salvation is? And if you were baptized in the past, was it the way the Bible instructs, and did you meet the biblical requirements prior to being baptized? If not, was your baptism recognized by God? These are serious questions. Among professing Christians and Jews, water purification rites vary widely, from hand washing to sprinkling water on infants, to total immersion for adults. Some even ignore the doctrine of baptism entirely. Why are there such differences? After all, don't they all claim the same source for the origin of their practices? Is the Bible that confusing? What does the Bible actually tell us about baptism? Stay tuned! A warm welcome to all of you from Tomorrow's World, from all of us here in the Living Church of God, the sponsor of this program, and I especially welcome those of you who are joining us for the first time. Water purification rites are common to many religions. Buddhist temples in Japan provide small stone basins for visitors to purify themselves by ritually washing their hands and mouth when visiting a temple and guests cleanse themselves in like manner when attending a tea ceremony. In the Shinto tradition, men and women clad in loincloths, kimonos, and headbands, bathe under waterfalls or other natural running water to be purified. Hindus practice ritual purification by bathing their bodies in the Ganges, or other rivers considered to be holy, and some Hindus sip water when reciting various mantras. Among various North American indigenous tribes, a sweat lodge or sauna is used to purify an individual in preparation for special ceremonies. Water purification rites are practiced in one form or another by both Christians and Jews. In Roman Catholicism, infants are baptized. Protestants, depending on which denomination we're talking about, practice both infant and adult baptism and water that is considered holy is available in churches for members to dip their fingers in before making the sign of the cross. On today's program, I'm going to show you from the pages of the Bible that baptism is important and what it symbolizes. I'll also show you the one and only biblically sanctioned way to be baptized, who it is that should be baptized, and what the requirements are for the individual seeking baptism. Let's begin by asking the question, Is Baptism Important? Why is it that some churches view water baptism as unimportant, while others think it is important? After all, most churches claim that the authority for their practices come from the book known as the Bible. But is this really true? Or have man-made traditions taken precedent over scripture? If God truly exists, and if the Bible is truly the expression of His mind, then you need to know what it says. Does the Bible, specifically the New Testament, command water baptism? There is nothing complicated about this question. Either it does or it doesn't. We read in Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13, that Jesus was baptized as an example for us. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by Him, and John tried to prevent Him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then He allowed him, Now, if Jesus did this as an example for us, why would anyone claiming to follow him think it's unimportant? Furthermore, Jesus was also responsible for baptizing others. We are informed of this little recognized fact in John, the fourth chapter, verses one through three. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus Himself did not baptize, but His disciples, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And after His death and resurrection from the dead, Jesus instructed His apostles to baptize new converts. We read this in Matthew the 28, chapter, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in, or into, the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Did His disciples follow these instructions? A few weeks after receiving this commission, the Apostle Peter confronted an audience made up of, in part, people who had participated in bringing about the brutal crucifixion of Jesus. His sermon was a powerful one in which he convicted them of unjustly killing the prophesied Messiah just as the Old Testament scriptures predicted they would. Those who heard Peter were deeply disturbed and asked an important question in Acts 2, verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And what was Peter's answer? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The truth of the matter is that anyone who reads the New Testament Scriptures with an open and objective mind can only conclude that baptism is important and necessary. Jesus was baptized. He was responsible through His disciples for baptizing a great number of people. The apostles, including Paul, were all baptized. Jesus instructed His followers to go to all nations with the truth and to baptize those who respond to the truth and repent. When asked what to do to have their sins forgiven, Peter commanded repentance and baptism. The history of the first century church shows over and over again the importance of this simple ceremony that has such deep and profound meaning. We've only looked at a few of the scriptures that prove baptism is important. We'll see more as we explore the symbolism of baptism. Baptism is hardly a meaningless ceremony. We read in the Bible of a man named Saul, This man was taught by Gamaliel, one of the greatest instructors of Judaism of the day. Saul was very zealous and became a great persecutor of Christians, but one day he was struck down supernaturally while on his way to Damascus to arrest followers of Jesus Christ. He was blinded by an intensely bright light and heard a voice from heaven. After three days without sight and fasting, a man named Ananias came to him. And here's what took place when these two men met Acts, the ninth chapter, verses 17 and 18. And Ananias entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once, and notice this, he arose and was baptized. Yes, he was baptized. Saul's name was later changed to Paul, and anyone familiar with the Bible knows him as the Apostle Paul, one of the most significant biblical personages. He went on to write 14 letters that make up a major portion of the New Testament. But what was the meaning of Paul's baptism? What did it symbolize? Some years later, this former persecutor had become the persecuted. And in defending himself, he rehearsed what Ananias instructed him to do after receiving his sight. And in these instructions, we learn something of the meaning of this ceremony. Acts 22nd chapter and verse 16. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Here we find an endorsement for baptism and learn a part of the meaning of this ceremony, but is this the complete explanation? The Apostle Paul gives us the fullest meaning of baptism in his letter to the Christians in Rome. In the sixth chapter of this letter, Paul discussed the problem of sin, which is the transgression of God's law. He explained that we are all guilty of breaking that law and the end result is the death penalty and no amount of future law keeping will remove that penalty. You can keep the law perfectly from this day forward, but you are still under the death penalty because of past transgressions. Paul went on to explain that through Christ's sacrifice, we can be forgiven past sins as a free gift from God but he knew that some would misunderstand and think that this free gift of forgiveness means that we don't have to keep the law anymore. That is why he asks and answers the following questions here in the 6th chapter, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, that is, transgressing God's law, that grace may abound? Certainly not! How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now what follows is an explanation of what it means to be dead to sin, and that explanation is found in the ceremony of baptism. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We see here that baptism pictures a death, burial, and resurrection service. We must repent of our sins and figuratively put to death the person we once were and come up out of the water to a new life of obedience to God. Paul leaves no doubt that the convert has his part to play. God does not expect us to continue in the path we once lived. Here's what Paul told the people of Colossae in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The Bible is very clear on this subject. Baptism pictures the washing away of our sins, but it also pictures the death and burial of the old self and a resurrection to a new way of life. It also reminds us of what Christ did for us. He died and was buried on our behalf and resurrected to eternal life three nights and three days later. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, Visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. So far on today's program we have seen that baptism IS important, and that baptism symbolizes death to our former way of life. Now let's look at the proper method of baptism as we have seen baptism pictures being totally engulfed by a figurative death by water. There are two prime examples of this found in the Old Testament of the Bible. The first is the worldwide flood of Noah's time. Breaking into a thought that refers to that event, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, there is also an antitype of the flood, which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Noah and his family were surrounded by water. It was above them, below them, and around them. But for the world the flood was a watery grave. All died except those preserved within the ark. The other Old Testament example is that of the children of Israel going through the Red Sea on their way out of Egypt. In this example, we see that God supernaturally parted the waters for the children of Israel to escape. When the Egyptian army tried to follow, the waters returned and killed every last one of them. In the first letter to the people of Corinth, Paul tells us that this incident was also a type of baptism. Notice how Paul paints the picture of a cloud above, that's water, and the sea surrounding them. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In both of these examples, the flood and the crossing of the Red Sea, we see the image of a watery grave and the coming up to a new life. In the New Testament we find example after example of baptism by total immersion. Sprinkling requires only a very small amount of water, far less than a teacup, but we find that a significant amount of water was needed when individuals were baptized. It's important to remember the meaning of baptism. When someone dies, we don't stand him up against a tree and sprinkle dirt on him. We put him in the ground and bury him. Baptism pictures a burial and enough water is required to totally submerge the individual. That is why John the Baptist was baptizing along the Jordan River. We read in John 3, verse 23, Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. One biblically famous baptism was that of the Ethiopian eunuch. Here was a man that Philip, the newly ordained deacon, encountered. This man's humility set a wonderful example for all of us. He was teachable, unlike so many in today's world, and he recognized his own limitations. As he was reading a scroll composed by the prophet Isaiah, Philip approached the chariot in which he was sitting, And he asked this simple question in Acts, the eighth chapter, verses 30 and 31. Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Philip went on to explain that the passage of scripture he was reading was a prophecy of Jesus Christ. We're not told the entire conversation. But at a certain point, as the chariot was traveling along the road, we see that the eunuch had come to a point of conviction. Let's read what happened beginning in verse 36. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Not only do we learn the kind of humble attitude one must have to be baptized, we also see that baptism was by immersion. The eunuch was fully immersed. That should be obvious from the fact that both he and Philip went down into the water and came up out of the water. So far we have shown that baptism is important. That baptism symbolizes death to our former way of life and Biblical baptism is done by immersion. Finally, we must now look at the requirements for Christian baptism. As we have already seen, the Ethiopian eunuch asked, What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip's response was, If you believe with all your heart, you may. But believe what? And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Believing in Jesus Christ, who He was, and what He did for us is essential for true Christian baptism. Many professing Christians today believe that's all that matters, that all we have to do is confess Jesus and love one another. While some or most may be well-meaning, they misunderstand the message of the New Testament. Toward the end of the first century, decades after the crucifixion, and long after the other apostles had died, the apostle John tells us in his first letter, chapter 2, beginning and verse 3, Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in Him. Perhaps you've heard someone say that the Old Testament biblical laws are burdensome and that all we need is love, but what does John tell us in 1 John 5 and verse 3? For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, And His commandments are not burdensome. Jesus warned us that there would be those who professed to look on Him as Lord and Master, but they wouldn't obey what He tells them to do. Notice this warning that Jesus gave us in Luke, the sixth chapter, verse 46 But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Believing that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah is absolutely essential and it is a part of what is required for Christian baptism. But it is clearly not enough. We must obey Christ and that means we must turn from one way of life and embrace a different way of life. On the day of Pentecost, Peter did not tell the people to come just as they were. Instead, he commanded, Repent! And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's found in Acts 2, verse 38. And when Jesus first began his ministry, he also commanded repentance, and then added another requirement. We read this in Mark, the first chapter, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, that's number one, and believe in the gospel, that's number two. Repent means to turn away from our past way of life and to embrace a different way of life. We must stop trusting our own way of thinking, and this isn't easy to do. It requires a teachable attitude, such as the Ethiopian eunuch had. How often we are told to trust ourselves, but this is bad advice. Notice this warning from the book of Proverbs, chapter 14 and verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The prophet Jeremiah understood something that so few understand. That our own way of thinking is not sufficient. Instead, we must come to trust God with all our heart to direct our ways. That's why he wrote, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. That's from Jeremiah, the 10th chapter verses 23 and 24. So in addition to believing in Jesus Christ and humbly repenting of your sins, you must believe the gospel of the Kingdom of God. This last point is quite a subject in itself, and time does not permit me to go into it at this time, but past programs have focused on this point and can be found at our website, which will be shown momentarily. But today, I invite you to check out our booklet titled Christian Baptism. It covers many of the points I've given you today and much more. You can read or download this publication at our website. So please check it out because truly your eternal life is at stake. So go to our website right away before you get too busy. And be sure to come back next week at this same time and station to learn more about tomorrow's world and how you can be a part of it. See you next week, right here. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The preceding program has been produced by the Living Church of God.